All right. So today we're going to kick off a new series called Unshakable, the foundations of our faith. And what we're going to do in this series is we're going to adjust our focus to some of the core beliefs that we hold as Christians. Okay? And these core beliefs are things that do not change no matter whether you are in 2020 BC or 2020 AD, whether it is an election year or not, whether it is pre COVID or post COVID, these foundational truths do not change. We're going to look at things like the character of God. We're going to look at things like the role that humans, that suffering plays in the Christian life. We're going to look at the grand story of redemption, the story of salvation, and we're going to look at the eternal security that we have in God. So to start off this series, I've been asked to start off the message with the Bible. Okay, as you can imagine, the unshakable Bible. And as you can imagine, that's a pretty broad topic, right? That could go any way of about a million different directions. And so I could just start off with a sermon on um, the doctrine of Scripture, right? So we'll go into infallibility and inerrancy and the reliability of the biblical text. Well, I want to go a slightly different direction this morning in that I want to take the Bible and I want to zoom out. I want to zoom out and I want to see the larger story that Scripture is telling, And not just the larger story, I want to look at the character, the central character of our Bible, the God of our Bible. And I want to look at what they're saying about him. Because as we take an in-depth look at the God of this story, we need to be asking ourselves, what kind of God is this? And is he worthy of our trust? Will you pray with me? God, as we launch into this series, and as we look at the scope of Scripture and we see your word, we pray, God, that you will... Uh, settle the dust around us, that you will settle the things around us that would obscure our view of who you are. And I pray, God, that you will, um, that you will come in, that you will sweep into this, and that you will give us a clear picture of who you are, and that we will respond accordingly. We give you this time. May we leave this place changed by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So years ago, a friend and mentor of mine did a lot of research on the star of Bethlehem. In fact, he did so much research that they ended up making a documentary out of some of his findings. Now, fast forward some years later, and my friend has a new obsession, okay? This time, he's obsessed with a passage of scripture that deals with an earthquake, an earthquake that happens at the same time as the crucifixion of Jesus. Because in his mind, this is a really bold claim, because if there really was an earthquake at the time of the crucifixion, an earthquake that was powerful enough to tear the temple curtain from top to bottom and open the graves in and around Jerusalem, this wasn't just your normal little, ooh, rumbly-tumbly, right? This was an earthquake, and there's going to be evidence of that, okay? So what he did is he did his research, assembled a team, and went out to the Holy Land, Okay, because if there really was an earthquake of that magnitude, then the rocks would tell the story. And so what he did is he ended up doing a lot of research at the Dead Sea to where the erosion of the walls of the Dead Sea just fade away to where you can literally see the time just before your eyes. And he analyzed the time, the, the layers that were from the time of Christ. And as he took other samples and he put those together, it was really hard to get a linear story out of that. But once all the variables were accounted for, once the dust settled, so to speak, you sound like the rocks told the same story. And that's what we're going to, that's going to be our approach this morning. Because for us, when we look at the Bible, sometimes we find ourselves flipping through the pages like, man, the God that I read over here in this book looks pretty different than the God that I'm reading about over here in this book. What's the deal? How do I deal with that? Because it's not always easy, is it? 
That's what I want to do. Is we, today I want to take the story, the scope of Scripture, and after the variables are accounted for and the dust settles, we're going to see that our Bible does, in fact, tell the exact same story. Because the character in this Bible, the God of this Bible, does not change. So what we're going to do this morning is I want to look at what I think are the three most prominent features of these strata. The three most important characteristics that define and characterize the God of the Bible. Because I said before, there's a very important questions that need answering. Who is this God and can I trust him? And what we're about to see is that the entire Bible is designed specifically to answer those questions. So as we look at our various core samples, we're going to take core samples from various parts of the Bible. We're going to analyze those and we're going to see one thing that comes to the foreground over and over and over again. And it's this. Our God is faithful. Now, if I were to tell you just the word, what comes to your mind when you think of the word faithful? There's probably any sort, you know, all sorts of images that come to your mind. Some of you might be thinking of like the geyser, like Old Faithful, Yellowstone National Park, right? Others you might be thinking of like Lassie, or like you know, a dog, someone, someone that's very loyal, a faithful dog. Or you might think of like husband and wife or a good friend to where they are faithful to one another. If a, if a husband and wife are being faithful, it means they are keeping all of their romantic energy within the confines of their covenant, Right? If someone were to take their romantic energy and, and point that in other directions, that would be being unfaithful, right? And so in any of those situations, we're basically on the right track, right? Because they all deal with a dependable behavior, an expected behavior based on your relationship. For old geyser, or for old geyser, old faithful, the geyser, by the way, um, that, you can expect that to erupt 20 times a day, okay? For um, Lassie, Metaphorically speaking, you can expect that Lassie will be loyal and faithful to her master, whether that master's had a good day or bad day. And for a husband and wife, if they are acting faithful to one another, then their focus and their energy is directed and kept within the boundaries of their covenant. Right? And so when we say that God is faithful, we're essentially saying the same thing. We're saying that God is, we can expect God to interact, relate, and move within the confines of his character. We can say that he is going to respond and move as he said he will, right? So it's a dependable and reliable behavior because you know, no one can, can point to God and say, you know, that God guy, I just really can't get a handle on his character. You know, he's up one day, he's down the next, and you know, I just never know what I'm gonna get from him. No one can say that about God. At least no one who's read his word can say that about God, okay? So when we say God is faithful, we are saying that he is dependable, reliable. It means that all he says is true because he does not change. His promises are sure and they will last true through a thousand generations because he does not change and God is faithful. So the first core sample that I want to take in scripture is going to come from the end of Moses' life. Now this is, he's, Moses is 120 years old at this time. God has said, Moses, it's closing time and you need to give your farewell address and pass the baton on to Joshua. So that's exactly where we are. It's after the Exodus, after the 40 years in the wilderness, Moses' farewell speech. Will you look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 31, starting in verse 7? We're going to read 7 to 13. It says this, Then Moses called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall give it to them as an inheritance. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. 
Do not fear or be dismayed. So Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. Then Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of remission of debts, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which he will choose, you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, the men and the women and children and the alien who is in your town so that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all the words of this law. Their children who have not known will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live on the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. So a couple of things about this passage. Why is it, do you think, that the priests were instructed to read the law to all of Israel, to like everyone, what would that accomplish? Now, the law was a covenant, right? And a covenant had very defined boundaries. In this case, obedience would result in X. Disobedience would result in Y. You follow me so far? So Moses did this so that everybody could see for themselves whether or not God was faithful. Does that make sense? So someone could say, Okay, God says, if you obey, I'm going to bless you like this, this, and this. And if you disobey, I'm going to remove those blessings by doing this, this, and this. So now everyone, not just the men, but the women and the children and even the the aliens that or the, the foreign immigrants that are inside the community of Israel, even they will be able to see, they'll hear the law and be able to think over the last seven years since they heard this last. They'll be able to think, it's like, hmm, this is what God said he'd do. Hmm, this is what's happened. Has he done it? Yes, that is what 120-year-old Moses is trying to tell the people of Israel. He says, I've lived 120 years. I can know, and I'm telling you that God is faithful. Because remember at this point, there's very few people who are even alive who remember the Exodus. Okay, that was a part of the 40 years in the wilderness. That generation had to die off before they could go into the promised land. So these people have grown up hearing stories about the Exodus and stories about God's faithfulness, but they hadn't experienced it for themselves. To read the law was so they could see for themselves God is faithful. And that is what Moses is trying to get across. So everything God says is true. And notice the special prophecy he gives to Joshua in verses 7 and 8. Let me read that again just real quick. It says, Then Moses called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord your God has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall give it to them as an inheritance. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. It's a milestone, you see? It's a milestone that Joshua can look back on because Moses is saying, don't be afraid because God is going to do this through you. You can take it to the bank. You shall go. And Joshua does take it to the bank because if you fast forward to the end of Joshua's life, he's gonna say the exact same thing, okay? Look with me. And uh, Joshua chapter 23, verses 14, verse 14. It says, now behold, today I am going the way of all the earth. <laughs> That's a nice way to say I'm about to die, right? Okay, today I'm about to die. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you and not one of them has failed. So now it's Joshua's turn. Joshua, just like Moses, can look back over the amazing events of his life and he comes to one amazing feature. God is faithful. And that's not to say everything is hunky-dory 
It's not to say everything, well, everything just works out for the best in the end. No, because both Moses and Joshua both encountered deep failures and deep consequences for their disobedience, right? So I'm thinking of like in Joshua where one of the soldiers um, disobeys God by taking some of the loot when he wasn't supposed to, hides it in his tent, and now all of a sudden the next time Israel goes out, they suffer this devastating defeat. People are killed, and it's just this crippling defeat for Israel. Or Moses, when God says, Moses, I need you to speak to this rock and water will come out. Instead, Moses loses his temper, gets angry, and strikes the rock with his staff instead. Uh, big mistake. Big consequences. So Joshua is reminding Israel that God is faithful and that works both ways. That's why he says in the next verse, in Joshua 23, 15, he says, It shall come about that just as all the good words which the Lord your God spoke to you have come upon you, so the Lord will bring about all the threats until he has destroyed you off from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Joshua is saying, please don't blow it. Remember that you're in a covenant, and the God on the other side of this covenant is faithful. That works both ways. So now, if we're gonna shift gears, a second theme that we're gonna see coming throughout over and over again in the scriptures is this, God is forgiving. Now, I wanna pause on this word forgiving for just a second, because if we just use it in the generalized forgiveness, we're likely to lose a lot of its meaning, okay? Because forgiveness, Jillian. Um, in the Hebrew, there are three separate words for forgiveness, okay? And they each have their own little meanings and nuances, and I don't want those to get lost. Okay? Because what I want us to see clearly is this. If forgiveness means anything, it does not mean simply sweep it under the rug and pretend it didn't happen. That's not called forgiveness. That's called impossible. Right? It, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Because forgiveness at his heart is this. Someone always has to pay a price. Someone always has to pay a price in forgiveness. For instance, if I let someone borrow my car and they took this car out for a joyride and they wrecked my car and they came back and they say, Rob, it's okay, I'm okay, but your car is totaled. And I say, oh man, I'm so glad you're okay. I, I forgive you for wrecking my car. What happens now? Can I just snap my fingers and wave my magic wand and my pre-wrecked car appear before me? No. It's something still got to be done, right? Someone's got to pay for the car. And so you can't just sweep it under the rug and pretend like it hasn't happened. That's what forgiveness is. It's you have to pay a price to make things right. In the Hebrew, the two most used words for forgiveness, uh, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that word nasah, the one about to bear up the Lord's image, the same word is used for forgiveness, to, like, to lift, to bear, to carry. The word nasah, you have this, this idea of um, carrying a burden, like you have to bear the weight of your penalty, right? You have to bear your guilt. We use this word a lot, even in the English, it, it still carries over. Um, we, we, we bear up under our punishment. But in the Hebrew, it's, it's that same word of, if you're gonna forgive someone, you pick the weight up off of them. So forgiveness is essentially, in a lot of senses, carrying the weight for someone else, okay? Now the second word used in Hebrew is very similar, it's the word kasah, and that means to cover, and that means to cover or conceal. Okay, and it's used interchangeably with this word atonement. Okay, now atonement is like this idea of, of blood that covers over the mercy seat. It's something that covers over our sin. It conceals our sin. 
Okay, now what I want to do real quick is I'm going to take you through a couple of verses in Leviticus, and I'm just going to basically read the last phrases of every verse because I want you to see how this idea of atonement and forgiveness run together. Okay, look with me in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 20. Um, He shall do with the bull just as he did with the bull of the sin offering. Thus he shall do with it. So the priest shall make atonement for them, and they will be forgiven. Next verse, Leviticus 4.26, skip down to the last sentence. It says, thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin, and he will be forgiven. Next verse, Leviticus 5.10, so the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin, which he has committed, and it will be forgiven him. Last one, Leviticus 6.7, and the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he will be forgiven for any of the things which he may have done to incur guilt. Do you see what's going on? You see that atonement and forgiveness in these verses are always kept separate? Because in a lot of ways, atonement allows for forgiveness. I don't want you to miss that. Atonement paves the way for forgiveness to happen, to make forgiveness possible. So what I want to do now is I want to look at King David specifically and how he addresses the topic of forgiveness with God because it's a perfect core sample for us to look at. David understands God's forgiveness in a way that nobody else does. I want to look first in Psalm chapter 32. Psalm 32, um, and we're going to skip in verse 1, 2, and 5. Read with me. It says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, Nassah, whose sin is covered, Kassah. How blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now skip with me to verse 5. It says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me the guilt of my sin. You nasah, you forgave the guilt of my sin. And so you might read this, and you might ask, wait a second, Rob, I thought you just said that there has to be atonement first, right? There's atonement, and then there's forgiveness. And at this point, I would say, aha, uh-huh. Exactly. Exactly. Where is David's atonement? Where is it? He just said, I'll just confess my sins and then you forgave my guilt. Where's the atonement? To look at that, I invite you to t- turn to Psalm 51. This is David's great psalm of confession after his sin with Bathsheba. Will you look with me? Psalm 51. We're going to skip around uh, starting in verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Here's the word for forgiveness. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquities and cleanse me from my sin. Skip with me down to verse 7. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Now down to verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So who is the active agent in all of these verses? It's God. As David comes before God with his sin, he is feeling the full weight, the full guilt and burden of his sin. And he realizes that there's no blood in the world of bulls and goats and rams that could cover his sin. There's no amount of sacrifices that I could make that would take away the guilt and punishment for this sin. There's nothing I can do. And so in the end, He has to only just fall on the mercies of a forgiving God. 
For David, the debt is too great. That's why he says that we didn't read these verses, but he says, if you wanted sacrifices, if you wanted the blood of bulls and goats, he's like, I would have offered it. Take them all if that'll remove the guilt of my sin. But there's nothing I can do. In the end, forgiveness has got to come from God. So that might lead you to ask, why? Like, why forgive? Why would God forgive? Why? It doesn't make sense for having someone to wreck your car. You forgive them and you pay for your own car, right? It's like, if you wreck my car, you pay for it first. Now we're square and now I forgive you. Does that make sense? It doesn't make sense to you wreck my car, I'll pay for it, and then I'll forgive you. That's just, it rattles the brain. But that is what God is doing because our God is a God who forgives. Now, the third thing that we're going to see that defines this characteristic of the God of our Bible is this. We have a God who chooses to love. Now, to illustrate this, the core sample that I want to take here is probably one of the most powerful and poignant images in all of Scripture, and it's the story of Hosea. Okay? The story of Hosea, Israel is in deep spiritual adultery to God, and God is begging, begging Israel to come back. Come back. It's about to get a whole lot worse for you because I am faithful to my covenant. Please, I don't want to see you suffer like this because I am faithful. That means that I will be faithful to bless you, and I'll also be faithful to remove those blessings if it means to get you back. So in Hosea chapter one, God tells Hosea to marry a prostitute who would not be faithful to their marriage covenant. In fact, she would have multiple illegitimate children outside of that marriage. God says, that's what it's like for me. He said, that's what it's like for me to love you and to be faithful to you, to provide for you, and you to give all of your affections and your energies and point them elsewhere. But God is faithful, God is forgiving, and God is loving. And so he tells Hosea in chapter two, this is after his wife has left him and she is now sold into human trafficking. He says, now Hosea, go get her back. Go buy her, pay full price. Go atone for her, go forgive her, go love her, go woo her, woo her. (laughs) Go get her because that is what I will do for you. Listen to the words of how God describes how he will rescue his people. Look with me at Hosea chapter two, starting in verse 14. It says, however, in the future, I will allure her and I will lead her back into the wilderness and I will speak tenderly to her. From there, I will give her back her vineyards to her and turn her valley of trouble into an opportunity for hope. And there she will sing as she did when she was young, when she came up from the land of Egypt. And at that time, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will never again call me my master. For I will remove the names of the Baal idols, the Baal idols from your lips, so that you will never again utter their names. I will commit myself to you forever. I will commit myself to you in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and tender compassions. I will commit myself to you in faithfulness. Then you will acknowledge the Lord. God's love will stop at nothing to rescue his bride. Now, you heard in the text how he says, when we go out, I will lead you out into the wilderness, and you might call me master, but when we come back, you're gonna call me husband. And that's really cool in the English, right? It's got some cool images, but it is beautiful in Hebrew. 
because in the Hebrew, there are two words that are interchangeable for the word husband. One is a word of, of position, Baal. It means master or lord. The other is the word ish, and it means husband. It's a word of relationship, okay? God is saying that we may go out and you may just be begrudgingly coming with me. You may just call me master or Lord, but when we come back, you'll never call me that again because I'm your husband. Because here historically, most likely, Hosea's wife was a Baal, a Baal temple prostitute. And so he says, you may go out there calling me Baal, but when we come back, you will never again have to say that name. I have rescued you. I have rescued you from that temple. I have rescued you from that slavery. You'll never again even have to say his name. That is the love of our God. So now, we've seen several different core samples to where we kind of focus in on one quality, right? We see God's faithfulness, his forgiveness, his love. Well, what I want to do next is I want to take a core sample that I think is where all three of these come to a head. It's where the heart and character of God is in full display. It's in full regalia. It's at the cross of Jesus Christ. Do you want proof that God is faithful to do all that he says he will do? You wanna see where David got his idea of atonement, how he knew that at some point it would have to come from him? You want proof that you've been forgiven? You want proof of the depths of love that God will show you and pursue you. Behold the man. In the Latin, it's ecce homo. It's the same phrase that Pontius Pilate used when he presented a beaten and flogged Jesus to the crowds. Behold the man. And it's the same man that I present to you this morning. Behold the man and behold his cross. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, when you were dead, in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which were hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. You see, church, atonement has never come from us. It's always been him. He's always been the one who's paid the price. He's the one who even today shows faithfulness, forgiveness, and love to us. So what are we supposed to do with that? How are we supposed to take this into our Monday mornings, into our work weeks, into the weeks beyond? I think that's gonna look different for all of us. But if I can boil it down to one thing, I would say this that our lives will never be changed until we take this inside of us, until we make it personal. Because until we realize that God's faithfulness is not something that's just scattered throughout the pages of the Bible, but that God's faithfulness actually applies to your life, it's not gonna change your life. It's not gonna change our lives. Until we realize that God's love is not just some cheesy platitude of God loves us, but that the love of God actually pursues us in all of our failures, in all of our rejections, in all of our adulteries. God's love still comes after and buys us. It'll never change our lives. Until we realize that God's forgiveness is not something that we just see in Renaissance paintings. The atonement of the cross is not something we just see in artwork. 
until the cross of Jesus Christ is applied directly to our individual lives, it won't change our lives. In fact, none of these things will change our lives if we haven't first taken it inside us and made it a part of our identity, a part of who we are. Because here's the, the last thing, is that our actions flow out of our identity. That's what the first two chapters of the book of James is talking about. He's saying, you know, like, if, you wanna, if, if I want to know what someone believes, that's really easy. All I have to do is watch them for a while. I'm going to see their actions. I'll tell you exactly what they believe based on their actions. It's not rocket science, people. Just, just watch them. You'll find out exactly what they believe. Okay? So if you believe in, the, in your heart of hearts that you are unloved, that you are uncared for, that you are unvaluable, that you are beyond hope, beyond healing, beyond redemption, then you're going to live exactly like those things are true. But... On the other hand, if you believe that you are a bought child of God, that you are an heir of grace, that the faithfulness of God has pursued you, that the forgiveness that God has given you has chased you down the dark corridors and and hallways of your life and has bought you, if you believe that God's love and forgiveness apply to you directly and you have taken those truths inside, (laughs) it changes everything. It'll change everything about you. Because that means that no more are you going to have to go around looking for the approval of others or the approval of God. All you have to do is look at the cross. You've got it. No longer are you going to be asking yourself questions like, am I valuable enough? Am I loved for who I am? Look at the cross. It's there for you. The answer is there for us. And if we take that inside us, it changes everything. So how do we respond? We just respond. Because I don't want to go too deep into telling you exactly how we should respond. Because I don't want to give the false impression that just because we respond a certain way, that means everything's okay. Because you could respond and do all the right things, but your heart still be a million miles from where you need to be. If we reduce the Christian life just to a set of rules, man, we're exactly like the Pharisees. All I have to do is set reminders on my phone, and I could be husband of the year. Hey, Siri, remind me to tell my wife I love her. Remind me to say, please don't, please don't do this right now. Okay, but, okay. Uh, the setting reminders on your phone could make you the best in the world, right? Because all it is is just controlling your responses, right? No, it's about the heart. That's why Jesus says in the great commandment, the great commission, he's like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbors yourself. The rest is rock and roll. On this hang all the law and the prophets, He goes, if you position your heart, if those things are inside you, those actions naturally come out. I don't have to tell you what to do. On this hang the whole law and the prophets. It's a position of our heart. So God has sent us a veritable tidal wave of his love toward us. And when someone sees a tidal wave coming toward you, you don't have to go around reminding people to respond. Excuse me, there's a tidal wave. Would you like to respond? Would you like to move? we We don't have to do that. We know how to respond. In fact, I think the harder thing is not responding. Okay? Because like it or not, church, every single one of us in this room, myself included, will respond to this message. We will respond by either taking a step forward toward the love of God. We will take a step backwards away from the love of God. Or we will just stand there and do nothing. And all of those responses our responses. And we are all responsible for our own responses. Okay? 
So no matter what that is, God's tidal wave is coming. Some people are going to be running towards it. Other people are going to be running away from it. And some people are just going to be standing still. They're all responses. But what I ask you to do, what I encourage you to do, almost say dare you to do, would be to take a long, full, eyes wide open look at God's faithfulness to you, his forgiveness to you, his love to you, and then not respond. Can you do that? I can't. We all have to do something with it. And so that's, that's, the an- that's to answer the questions that we start off with. Who is this God, and can I trust him? This is the God of the Bible, a God of faithfulness, forgiveness, and love. This is his unshakable word. It is the inerrant, reliable, infallible word of God. And yes, you can trust it. Because in this book is the testimony and witness of a God who will not let you go, who will chase you down and will not rest until you are safe in his eternal arms. This is the heartbeat of God's word. Over and over, it is the overarching story of the entire Bible. It is a call that goes out over all of mankind, and you and I in this room, we have heard it this morning. And we're going to respond. Because we have seen with our eyes and with our hands have handled the very word of life. How are we going to respond? Will you pray with me? Lord God, we see your faithfulness. We see your forgiveness. We see your love. And we see them all at the cross of Jesus. God, help me, even today, to take those truths deeper inside of me. Even today, help us all in this room to take these truths deeper inside of us. May we look with eyes wide open, headlong, into what you have done for us, to your faithfulness, forgiveness, and love. And may we respond by moving toward you and not running away, not standing still and pretending like nothing has happened, that this will all, this, these feelings will all go away in a couple of days and I can just go back to normal. God, may we take a step toward you and may we leave this room changed. We give you this time. May you change our hearts by the truth from your precious word. In Jesus' name.